0: Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again. To Four Cents a Podcast, I am your host Ian Martinez Kastmeyer, and thank you for joining me for what is our last episode of this mini series, O. Henry holiday season. Well, as promised, when I announced what I was going to do to the series, uh, the story, the featured story today, is going to be O. Henry's holiday classic, "The Gift of the Magi," and what better day to read that story and to reflect on it and to conclude this series than Christmas Eve itself. I've got my little glass of, uh, <laughs> I'm drinking bourbon. I think O. Henry would approve. A little glass of uh, Jack Daniel's honey. Very sweet and also very dangerous. It's very understandable why so many writers succumb to this, which is kind of interesting because that has a lot to do with this final chapter in O. Henry's life. But that said, Let's go ahead, get started, and get to the story. Stick with me. You're going to enjoy this. So, we read joan O. Henry for this last stretch of his life. Um, by this time, this is about 1901. He's in the final decade of his life. And the final decade of his life, in many ways, is both the best years and the worst years of his life. He had gotten out of prison early. He'd been sentenced to serve five years in prison for embezzling funds from his bank, uh, the First National Bank in Texas. And he'd gotten out three after three years for good behavior. He'd been a model prisoner, apparently. Um, and when he got out in 1901, he had already had a head start in his writing career, Because while he was in prison, during those three years, he'd already been submitting and publishing stories in a lot of New York magazines. uh, Including the first one, Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking, which appeared in McClure's magazine that first bared the pen name O'Henry. And so you could say that from the moment he got out of prison, from the moment he was released, he finally kind of had a jump start on what he was able to do with his life on this final stretch of his life. So when he got out, he left Texas and eventually moved up to Pennsylvania because that's where Athol, his his in-laws, who were looking after Margaret the entire time when he was in prison and had gotten out of Texas specifically because he'd been convicted and had been their son-in-law and so forth, they'd rooted up stakes and moved up to the Northeast. And so they were up in Pennsylvania. O'Henry went to join them to be reunited with his daughter. The last real... Uh, remnant of his of his late wife, Athol. And it was also from there that he began to really prodigiously produce his stories, the stories that we all now remember him for. And at some point during that period of time, he moved to New York in order to be very, very close to his publishers. And in this stretch, O'Henry entered the frenzy, the last several years of his life where he was able to just produce, 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 and eventually leave behind 381 of the stories that he eventually was able to write were written in those last eight years of his life. And they were written copiously. Um, there was a magazine, a now-defunct magazine, called New York World, Sunday World, excuse me, New York World Sunday Magazine, uh, a weekly magazine very similar to The New Yorker and to Time Magazine today that comes out once a week and has new stories and new articles in it once a week. And O'Henry wrote a story for them for about a stretch of a year, one a week. So that means he wrote 52 of those 381 stories, um, almost a... What is that? That's, that's uh, about almost one-eighth. One-eighth of the stories in one year. Um, and he just he kept producing, 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 producing. Now, there's a reason for that. During his years when he was in Texas, and because he was a good Southern boy, o. Henry had been a big social butterfly. Um, he loved living the high life, and he had a taste for it. Now, the problem with that is, is twofold. He... Um, first of all, living the high life as we said, costs a lot of money but also a big part of living the high life and a part of being a big member of the social scene was social drinking, alcohol the universal solvent in every social situation and O. Henry also being a good southern boy got a real taste for alcohol to the point where he began to drink prodigiously it's been the undoing of many many writers in history, is the cocktail, and and, and you know the tumbler of bourbon, um, the martini. It's it's always spirits too. It's never beer and wine. It's always hard liquor, um, and it's. I, I've always wondered why that is, um, as a as a writer myself, and also as a person who studied literature and loves literature and loves literary history as well. I think. Part of it has to do with the fact that writing is a very frustrating profession. It's a very fulfilling and very creative profession, but at the same time it can be incredibly agonizing, especially when one is dealing with the stressors of feeling like you know, the, the, the fraud police are knocking on your doors, saying that you're nothing all the time, and you're not able to produce, and having to deal with blocks and those stops and starts that come from being a writer that, you know, sometimes you got a very good clip going and you can write several thousand words in one go, and then all of a sudden the next day you wake up and you're cold. You're completely cold, and you're lucky if you can get a hundred words out in the same amount of time that it took you to write 2,000 the day before. And I think the uncertainty of that, coupled with the fact that he had this very lavish lifestyle and the fact that he was now supporting a very bad habit, an addiction, really, uh, and trying to take care of his daughter, was... And, and having those weekly deadlines for the New York World Sunday must have just been agony for him. Um, to have been able to produce works of such genius and yet at the same time having to deal with all the crippling self-doubt and stress and anxiety to go along with it, eventually he's going to turn to the bottle. And unfortunately that's exactly what happened. He turned to the bottle, and he it really started to take a toll on his health. Now, while O'Henry was living in New York, he actually eventually did remarry to a woman named Sarah, sometimes Sally Coleman, who had been a childhood friend of his growing up in Greensboro. Uh, and Sally herself, uh, very much like Margaret, O'Henry's daughter, uh, was also a writer, and in fact wrote a novella that was kind of a fictionalized account of their, of her and O. Henry's initial love affair. Unfortunately, O. Henry's drinking made that relationship completely un, uh, unsoluble. It never went really anywhere, even though they were married, and they stayed married until O. Henry's death, they only lived together in New York for a very brief period of time before Sally went back to her family in Greensboro because, oh, Henry was a mess. He was producing like a madman. He was constantly in need of money to keep up with his own habits and to, to keep up with his own drinking and to keep up with his finances. Um, And to, to just get him through the act of writing, it was a real torture session for him. And unfortunately, because writing is also a very self-absorbing activity, There was not really much room left in his soul, in his heart, in his head for anybody else except his work by that point. Um, Before then, you know, working those straight jobs, um, O. Henry had been able to um, manage it, had been able to find a balance to make his first marriage a success, even though his, his first wife died. But he wasn't able to do it a second time and i think it's because his vices simply got in the way of it and unfortunately when he it it really took a toll on his health when he, uh, by the time he died in 1910 the same year incidentally as mark twain mark twain both died in 1910 as well um he was suffering from not only cirrhosis of the liver which is common among chronic alcoholics but is uh, he was also suffering from an enlarged heart. You know, you have a... If your blood pressure gets raised, your heart has to beat faster in order to compensate for it, and, you know, slowly those muscles gain in girth and strength, and because the heart never gets a chance to relax, it remains that big, which causes all sorts of complications later down the line. And he also was suffering from diabetes, which back in the 1900s, and the 1910s, was a death sentence. Um... It, it really was because there was no such thing as insulin so even if he'd managed to kick his addiction to the bottle which of course there there was no aa then um you simply had to go cold turkey on your own and i don't think o henry had the discipline to do that or he didn't have the wherewithal at all to try and take care of himself in those last few days to get rid of it but uh it was it was really all and all those compounding factors that eventually kind of that felled him in the end but the astonishing thing is, is that even though by the time he died, there was no money left, he was completely destitute, um, and his poor daughter, who would go on to live, outlive him by almost, uh, 14 years, 14, 15 years, something like that, um, despite all that, O. Henry still managed to produce an astonishingly good, great, enduring body of work that to this day is still important he's probably not as well remembered as he ought to be especially now now that we're well over 110 years removed from his death Um, but it's still i mean all the stories that we've read through this entire series just proves how enduring his work is and his work continued to endure and his legacy continues to endure i mean in 1952 a film called o henry's full house which was basically an anthology film made up of almost like the the creep show of its day it was this big movie that was actually made up of a whole bunch of smaller stories that were all based on o henry stories um and then you know and then later on the o henry award which is still considered the biggest prize, I think, that a short fiction writer can receive. I mean, Stephen King's won it, Walter Mosley's won it, Eudora Welty won it multiple times for her for her awards, for her stories. Uh, Truman Capote won it. It's a big deal, and he still matters. We may not remember him as we maybe should, and we may not valorize him like we should. I mean, we shouldn't sanctify him because he was definitely an imperfect man. Um, and I, I think he would have been the first one to acknowledge that, but his his work still has resonance to us for us today. Um, and one of the things that I don't think he gets credit for enough, you know, as often as he's pilloried, is the fact that he um, is able not only to write funny, you know, comically, wittily, but he's also able to write with great. Emotion, All, You know, bordering close to melodrama at times, maybe. But he's able to write with great emotion. And that brings me to the story we're going to read today, which is The Gift of the Magi. So stick with me, and I'll talk a little bit about that shortly. Okay. The Gift of the Magi which is the story that we will conclude this series with is arguably O. Henry's best known, best loved, and most remembered for story, and it's it's kind of interesting. I mentioned briefly before that O. Henry doesn't get the credit he's really ought to be uh, he's really owed for being able to write with very strong emotion. Um, I think in Yesterday's story, uh, twenty years after, we're kind of able to see a little bit of that. Uh, You know the fact that the character of of jim is not able to arrest the character of bob his old friend even though they've completely diverged and become completely different people um i think that there's something heartbreaking in that um and in and in the story, uh, the, re- the retrieved information that we read about Jimmy Valentine reforming and wanting to leave behind his life as a criminal in order to be with the woman he's fallen in love with, um, I think that, that says a lot about O. Henry, that he, he, he can write with emotion. Now, admittedly, we don't... I don't think we've... We we take too much credit to think about that too much. We don't give him, give him credit for that too much because of his writing style you know we, we I've said this I've harped on this over and over and over again about how Oh Henry his way of writing that third-person omniscient removed point of view it's very godlike but it doesn't enable you to really feel the experience of the characters it puts a lot of distance between you the reader and the characters as they go through the motions um, as they move through the story we're not able to feel it as readily as we might have uh, in O. Henry's day, and yet, there is something that is still enduringly human about some of these stories, and especially in the case of The Gift of the Magi, because The Gift of the Magi is fundamentally a story about love, it's a story about sacrifice, it's a story about willing to give up something that matters to you in order to make somebody who matters to you happy. Um, which is moving, and even though there is a certain kind of chastisement and a certain kind of wry—what's uh, uh, the word I'm looking for? This sort of wry, I um, critique, you might say. Yeah, wry critique of of foolhardy action. Uh, even with the best of intentions and you, you do something for somebody and maybe you do it completely out of emotion and not without reason and so forth. Um, even though that's there, it's still, this story is still a celebration of emotion. Now, the, the Gift of the Magi appeared, of course, in O. Henry's famous story, The Four Million, and unlike all the other stories that we've read, uh, of, of his so far with the exception of maybe yesterday's story uh, 20 years after and the first story we read, The Admiral from Cabbage and Kings O'Henry has this tendency to write about rogues uh, we've said this again, The Cisco Kid Jimmy Valentine, Soapy the Hobo all these characters um, you know, Bill Driscoll and Sam all of these characters are really sort of outside the realms of society. And meanwhile, in this story, we see a couple, a young couple, who are in their early 20s. We have to remember that this was a time when, if you didn't get married by 30, you were kind of considered an old dotard, uh, mainly because life expectancy was so much less, I think, in those days. Um, but, But in the case of this, this young couple, they don't have much... They've got each other, and that's kind of it, and they've fallen on hard times. And considering everything that's happened this year, where so many people are suffering because of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I think this story speaks to us even more, that this time of year, especially, the you know, the holiday season, we we find ourselves needing to remember and needing to be brought back to what really matters it's not the material things in life even though those things make us comfortable and we and to a certain extent we do need them because we we need some of them to function I mean coats gloves hats heat in our houses electricity you know shelter for rent uh, food that kind of stuff but fundamentally what it comes down to what we really need in our lives are our loved ones the people who matter to us because even though all those other things that I mentioned facilitate living a good life, what makes life worth living are the people who you have to share it with. And I think on that note, I will simply shut the hell up and turn you over to the story. This is O. Henry's Immortal, The Gift of the Magi. that was all, and sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implies. Three times Della counted it, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at eight dollars per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the Mendacity squad. In the vestibule below was a letterbox into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid thirty dollars per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week. Doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier-glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier-glass in an eight-dollar flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, attain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again, nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Saffronie, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Saffronie. "'Will you buy my hair?' asked Della. "'I buy hair.' said madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present she found it at last it surely had been made for jim and no one else there was no other like it in any of the stores and she had turned all of them inside out it was a platinum fob chain simple and chaste in design properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation as all good things should do it was even worthy of the watch as soon as she saw it she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her fort, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within forty minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do, oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made, and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then he heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white, for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, "'Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty.'" The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. I'll grow it out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact even yet after the hardest mental labor cut it off and sold it said Della. don't you like me just as well anyhow i'm me without my hair ain't i jim looked about the room curiously you say your hair is gone he said with an air almost of idiocy you needn't look for it said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with a sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim?" Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit could give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell," he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then alas... A quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs side and back that Della had worshipped for so long in a Broadway window beautiful combs, pure tortoise-shell with jewelled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession, and now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted ornaments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh. Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. "'Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. "'You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. "'Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it.' Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. "'Dell,' he said, "'let's put our Christmas presents away and keep em a while. "'They're too nice just to use at present.' I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs, and now I suppose you put the chops on." The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days let it be said that of all who give gifts these two were the wisest, of all who give and receive gifts such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest, they are the Magi. I think um, one of the most beautiful parts of this story, aside from the, relative, rel, rev, uh, the, the revelatory twist at the end um, of the story where the truth is out and that the two characters, the, the Dillingham Youngs, have sacrificed what mattered to them materially the most in order to try and make each other happy. There's something really sweet about that. Something that um, I think we can all relate to, because we've all had to make sacrifices in our in our lives over the years for the people who matter to us. Whether it's a parent who has to give up a dream in order to raise a child, um, an unexpected child maybe, but uh, you know, an unplanned blessing as they're sometimes called, or whether it's you know that. I'm reminded again of that uh, of the movie "It's a Wonderful Life," where all those unexpected circumstances occur in the life of George Bailey, and he has to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in order to help somebody, whether it's to keep his, whether it's the loss of his hearing in order to save his brother or, you know, that unfair, unjust beating that he gets at the hands of Mr. Gower for saving him from accidentally poisoning somebody, or having to give up his own freedom, his own chance of going to college in order to keep his father's business, which is a pillar of the community, afloat, Uh, and giving all that experience to the brother that he saved all those years before, you know, it's... There is a virtue in in, in sacrificing things for the people who matter, and for doing it for the right reasons. And I think it it, it rings true of the spirit of the season we now find ourselves in. I mean, this is Christmas Eve when I'm recording this, and Christmas on a fundamental level is supposed to be a time of great charity, Um, or at least it was. Uh, for, for many, many years. I'm not entirely sure what it is now, but uh, um, it used to be a time of giving and a time of just remembering and of reflecting on the essentials in life. Again, like I said, those things that really make life worth living, the people in your life that matter to you, the small kindnesses that matter to us in life that make make it more than just mere existence, make it actual life. And I think Henry's, in, in a beautiful way, summed it up in that final paragraph of the story. You know, and here I have, lamely related to you, the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flant who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures in their house, but in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that all of all who receive gifts, these two were the wisest. It doesn't say why, why these two were the wisest, but they were the wisest. Because they were willing to make that small sacrifice, a small, you know, material sacrifice in order to enrich the life of another, of a person who matters to you. That's really what this season's all about, isn't it? And I think on that note, I will wish everyone who has been listening to me last seven nights and everyone who is in the midst of celebrating this wonderful season that we are in, a happy holiday season, and I look forward, hopefully, to seeing you in the new year. So, if you have a God, may God go with you, and if you have family, Mm -hmm. cherish them, and in the meantime, As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy holidays to you, my funny people. Good night. Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on 4 Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves.